Welcome to The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocco. The executive director of the Eugene nonprofit Beyond Toxics spoke last month in Nahalem to a public meeting of North Coast communities for watershed protection as part of their series, Speaking Truth to Power. Lisa Arkin told the group that recent research on the Oregon Department of Forestry's state forest management exposed a pervasive use of aerial herbicide sprays. Arkin said weaknesses in Oregon's Forest Practices Act have led beyond toxics to recommend legislative action. Back in January of 2016, Beyond Toxics placed a public records request with the Oregon Department of Forestry, simply looking for information on how herbicide use is carried out in our state forests. So state forest means they're your forests. They're public forests. They're managed with taxpayer dollars and budgets that are coming from our legislature, which are your elected officials. Uh, that was January 2016. We didn't get data until over two years later in a big battle back and forth. And I just want to compare that when I made a similar request to Washington State, to their Department of Natural Resources, I had the same data within 48 hours nicely organized. Yeah, so the data from the state of Oregon is not organized. It's taken us months and months to try to piece things together. There's a, there's a record-keeping data problem at the Oregon Department of Forestry, and um, we would like to talk to the agency about how to remedy that. The case study involves Tillamook, Forest Grove, and uh, Clatsop, or Astoria District, uh, state forests. So we'll be talking about pesticides and human health, Oregon Department of Forestry practices of clear cuts and herbicide sprays, and talking a lot about drinking water protections from um, what's being done in our state forests. So oftentimes there's a confusion about the meaning of the term pesticides. So it's always good to kind of get on the same page about this. A pesticide is as you can see, an umbrella term. It refers to many kinds of sides. These are chemicals that are designed to kill something, usually, hopefully, something that we want not to be alive, something we want to take care of. So it can prevent those pests or destroy those pests, repel them, or do some other kind of action. But you can see there the list of all the different pesticides. So an herbicide is one kind of a pesticide, but an insecticide is also another kind of a pesticide. And it's just good to keep that in mind. Fungicides, miticides, rodenticides, they're all under the rubric of pesticides. So if someone says herbicides and pesticides, that's not correct. They would have to say herbicides, one of the kinds of pesticides. Now when we talk about tank mixes or you know, chemical mixes, what are we talking about there? There's something called the active ingredient in a pesticide. So you've probably heard of Roundup, right? So Roundup is like a brand name. The active ingredient in Roundup is glyphosate. So that's the active, meaning that that's the side. That's the thing that's killing. But there's also inerts within these products, and inerts are considered proprietary business 
products, and so we, as the public, are not allowed to know what the inerts are. So a product such as Roundup or such as Oust might have 80% of its mixture as inerts, and we do not know what those are. And maybe 20%, maybe less, maybe 12%, maybe 2% is the active ingredient. Sometimes the inerts can be as toxic as the active ingredient, sometimes possibly more toxic. So already you're getting a mix of chemicals within the product. Then in the tank mix, multiple products or active ingredients are combined and also added in the case of forestry are adjuvants. So these are things to enhance the ability of that mix to do its job, repelling, destroying, whatever. And the adjuvants can be things like surfactants that get the chemical to stick to the surface of the leaf and to penetrate the epithelial layer of the leaf or something to reduce foaming in the environment so we don't notice it as much, or something to block a smell, or something to reduce drift. So those are added in as well. And again, oftentimes we don't uh, understand the toxicity, not only of the adjuvants, but all the whole thing mixed together. There's no research that tells us what happens when you put 2,4-D, triclopyr and glyphosate in the same tank mix with a surfactant and a drift mitigator. Oh, there's no research really on that. And as I said, sometimes these additives can be very toxic. How do we get exposed? So there's acute exposure and chronic exposure. So acute is something that happens like right away, sometimes in small amounts, sometimes in large amounts. And oftentimes, the person who is exposed knows they've been exposed. They might start wheezing or get a rash or coughing or eyes running or a headache, something like that. Uh, chronic exposure might be slowly over time, such as if there's something poisonous in your drinking water. You're drinking your tea, your coffee, you're making soups and cereals and this chemical may be in water that you're ingesting throughout the day. Or it could be in food. So there's been many studies of the residues of pesticides in foods. And we do know that crops used for food that have been sprayed can oftentimes have a residue. And that might be a chronic exposure over time. And then how do they move in the environment? Basically, you have three primary ways of moving in the air, and that would be wind drift, thermal lift, and inversions. So these are when chemicals move off-site. And I'm sure you heard the term pesticide drift, so it's moving away from the target. So maybe the target is a row of trees, but it moves away from that and then can impact through chronic or acute exposures, maybe a worker who's picking apples a couple rows down, right? He's not in the target zone, but it could be impacted by drift. There's also volatilization and revolatilization. So when pesticides settle to the earth, they are, as, because they have these surfactants in them, they can 
stick on a leaf or stick on the ground. And then as the sun comes up, it heats those chemicals and they volatilize into the air. And then they can drift on thermal currents or whatever. And this can happen repeatedly. And especially in the coast range, where there's a lot of weather changes, uh, we hear many reports of volatilization and then re-volatilization. Uh, in 2000, a 2010 Journal of Environmental Quality article, a technical paper, compared herbicide runoff. This article compared pesticide loss moving off the target site from runoff with volatilization. And they found that volatilization, oh, they measured over the course of eight years. So they were taking data and averaging it. They found that volatilization resulted in eight times more pesticide loss from the target area than runoff. Pesticides can move along with soil and rain. They can seep through the ground. They can enter, oh, they can come up in a stack. For example, if you are a, uh, uh, if a plant that makes creosote logs or telephone poles, they can be having certain kinds of pesticides that are off-gassing from this site moving in the air, then settling down. So all of these things usually are going downstream, downhill. If you are having runoff from a farm, it can go and seep down into the groundwater, which then moves toward rivers and mixes with river water or runoff from residential areas for people who are using pesticides in homes or cities use them in parks, whatever it is. So all these ways that pesticides are moving in the environment. Pesticides are connected with warfare agents. Pesticides were developed or, or were sort of discovered during World War I and also into World War II. Things that were designed to kill people will also kill insects and bugs and things. And then vice versa, things that were developed to kill bugs were also designed to kill humans as well. So in World War I, you had those nerve poisons. I'm sure these terms are familiar, like mustard gas and sarin gas, VX. They are neurotoxins, and they have a lot of the same quality as, for example, organophosphates, which are insecticides. A lot of uh, insecticides, such as malathion and diazinone, are related to these organophosphorus and phosphorus phosgene gas, they all share these similar chemical qualities. So again, this is the short, short, short version here. And uh, in this case, as nerve gases, they work by disrupting the pattern and the action of communication in your nervous system, nerve cells. What happens when we're, our, when we're exposed to these kinds of chemicals? So you've probably heard this term, right? The dose makes the poison old, old term, like that means essentially the more you are exposed to, the more poisonous it will be and the greater the effect will be. So this is called a dose response curve. So little amounts supposedly were not poisonous and then more, you know, more dosage makes more toxicity for the whatever is being exposed. But now we know that a lot of things have not been considered with this old style, this old model of looking at how poisoning happens. So 
in this model of dose makes the poison and this dose response curve, um, it's only designed to consider one chemical at a time. But as we know, we're exposed to many chemicals at a time in daily life, and also in the case of these tank mixes used in forestry. So combinations of chemicals are not tested for a dose response curve like that. Also, the additive effects of multiple chemicals. Does, it, does one chemical enhance the toxicity of another? We, those, that is not studied. And how would that be on this dose response curve? Also, chronic effects are not really considered as much. This is kind of more along acute effects. Or what about differences in people? What's the difference between a 45-year-old, 200-pound male versus a six-pound baby? So if, if you have a toxin in your water and everybody's drinking the water, who's it going to affect more, the baby or someone who weighs 200 pounds? Also, someone whose system is already able to metabolize, excrete toxins, which an infant has a very hard time doing. Their, their metabolism is not you know, yet set up. So there's differences between male, female in our response to chemicals, things like that. So that is not taken into account with a dose response curve either. The other thing that's not taken into account is low chronic levels of chemicals that mimic chemicals in our own body or can be devastating at very low amounts. So, for example, um, maybe you are exposed to, let's say, atrazine, which is a known hormone disruptor. Maybe at a certain level you're getting headaches or a rash or coughing or feeling dizzy. At a certain level, which is called the LD50, in a laboratory setting, LD50 means when you expose laboratory animals to a chemical, 50% of them die. So that's called like the lethal dose level. But what happens when we're exposed in small amounts to chemicals that are similar to those in our body? So it takes very, 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 very little, let's say, estrogen and progesterone to induce menses. Very little, infinitesimal amounts. But what if we're exposed to a feminizing endocrine disruptor in the environment again and again, such as atrazine? Can we observe that effect? Probably not. It can lower sperm counts. It causes or is associated with breast cancer. It's associated with certain kinds of birth defects. How do we know if it's below the observable level what its impact will ultimately be. So the dose response curve is not useful in many cases. And really quickly, <laughs> how do these chemicals work when they enter our body? You smell it and you inhale it or you ingest it or you absorb it through your skin, that's dermal absorption, and it enters your body. Let's take a nerve toxin, like an organophosphate, like the kind of nerve toxins they used in war, or even today, chlorpyrifos, which is a nerve toxin. That toxin, as it impacts the nervous system, since it's a neurotoxin, will come down the nerve cell to a synapse. That's the space between the nerve ending and the receptors, like a muscle receptor. What happens when you're exposed to a nerve 
toxin is that it impairs this process. So you got too much acetylcholine, for example, entering this connection, this communication between the ending of a nerve cell and your muscle tissue. So it's being overloaded. It's not breaking apart. The acetylcholinesterase is not able to kind of mitigate the impact. And so you might have things like nerve spasms. You might have muscle cramping. You might feel nauseous and vomit. Your mucous membranes might start to secrete mucus a lot because you're getting overstimulated. Your heart will race. You get a headache because, again, the brain is a nervous tissue. All these things are happening. And so stomach spasms, heart spasms. You could have a stroke. You could lose bladder control, lung failure, all these things. Herbicides, pesticides can also cause cancer or are associated with cancer. We know some things have been um, called carcinogens or probable carcinogens. So how does that work? So when, again, when these chemicals enter your body, if they're a carcinogen or a mutagen, they change the way your cells are dividing and they cause too much cell growth and too much cell division as opposed to the normal way. Our goal here was just to understand what herbicide practices are used by our state agency. And so putting together all the data, uh, we find that from about 2015 to 2019, over 20,000 acres were sp sprayed with a helicopter spray, uh, almost 5,000 acres a ground spray, and then there was some spraying along roads, 35 acres for a total of over 25,000 acres in our state forest, these three state forests. And uh, what's interesting, though, is the predominance of aerial herbicide spray. So as you can see in the Tillamook Forest Grove, over 70% of all herbicide use was by aerial. And Astoria Clatsop, it's 92%, based on the data we're able to get from the agency. So how does this compare to our neighbor to the north? In documents provided by uh, the state of Washington, they favored aerial spray only 7% of the time in state forests. And I just averaged uh, those three forests there, and you get approximately 84% average in Oregon state forest in the north coast area, 84% aerial spray. There's also differences in the rules. So briefly, because I know you're very interested in water quality and fish and drinking water. So for a fish-bearing stream, and this is for state forests, uh, at least 150 feet buffer is required from a stream, a fish stream for an aerial herbicide spray. In Oregon, it's 60 feet. For domestic water use, that might be irrigation or drinking water. Um, in Washington, it's 200 feet, but there's also an, a state environmental uh, process, protection act. You have to go through a certain process even to get a permit to spray. So in the Oregon, we don't give out permits. It's not a regula regulatory system in that way. It's just a notification system. But in Washington, if you're gonna do any kind of spray near a 
domestic use, you have to notify the state and get permission. So for non-fish streams, perennial and intermittent, Oregon has no buffer. Uh, Washington also protects groundwater. And so it's not, groundwater isn't mentioned really uh, in Oregon, but in Washington, they again go through that State Environmental Protection Act, and they all actually ban certain chemicals from use in these groundwater protection areas, such as atrazine and hexazinone. Those cannot be used because they're known to persist in groundwater. And I uh, looked at Jetty Creek. If it was in Washington, you get about 70% more protection for that stream, and it goes farther up the stream as well because it's protecting non-fish bearing streams. So we looked at what's in the tank mixes for these sprays, and we found that in general, they're using aminopyrrolid, glyphosate, imazepyr, methyl and methyl. But all of them, 100%, use glyphosate. This is a recent article, January 2019, from the Canadian Journal of Forest Research that found that glyphosate does have residues in the environment that can be detected one year after the spray. So it's showing that what the manufacturer says is the half-life may or may not be actually the way it acts in the environment, depending on the environment. And as you know, recently the World Health Organization decided that glyphosate is a probable carcinogen to humans. The US EPA has not taken that stance. Now, getting into drinking waters. 1,140 acres were sprayed in the protected drinking watershed in the Forest Grove district, so to the east part of the Tillamook Forest Grove area. And 88% of those acres were sprayed within the 1,000-foot buffer that the DEQ has suggested be there to protect the water. And it's a thousand feet because these might be steep slopes, they might be prone to erosion and things entering the water. So um, again, there's this kind of mismatch between how we are protecting our water, which is not necessarily regulated in this case. If you combine what's going on in state forests with what's going on in private forests, then there's just something there to think about, yes? There's a lot of differences also comparing Washington and the way they contract out for um, herbicide application in state forests versus Oregon. So let's take pesticide records. So there has to be a daily record of when a pesticide is sprayed. That's a requirement for uh, public applicators and private applicators. So in Washington, these spray records are given to the department when the contract is completed. In Oregon, they are not required to be returned over to the department. So if you want to see those records, you will just be told the department doesn't have access to them in our state forests. So there's no record that the Department of Forestry has, which tells them what was actually done. Uh, in Washington, there's blue dye that's added so that because these are recreation areas, you might know that a spray occurred and avoid that area if you so choose to do so, to, to avoid it. 
So they do color flagging and they do blue dye, and especially around blackberry plants where people might be wanting to eat the fruit on their hike in a state forest. Uh, no flagging is required in Oregon. The, there are weather restrictions and uh, about wind and things like that, temperature, this would halt an operation in Washington and I could not find any kind of weather guidelines other than what's on the label in Oregon. So the department itself doesn't have a specific weather restriction other than what's on the pesticide label. And you already saw the chart on the spray buffers, but even how to come up with a buffer in relationship to a stream is different in the two states. One is the bank full where it, it it could expand, you know, in a high water setting. And in Oregon, it's just the high water mark. There's slightly different ways of doing it, but under bankful measurement, you get kind of a wider stream area. There was a lot of language in Washington about liability insurance and having insurance and proving you have insurance and even payment on a contract can be withheld until insurance policy is presented. A lot of care about safety. I couldn't find any such language in the Oregon ones other than contractors shall use every reasonable and practical means to avoid damage to property or injury to persons. So that's pretty subjective. Uh, in Washington, they had security deposits. Uh, $5,000 or 10% security deposit so that the state can determine if the contract was carried out according to the conditions of the contract. If it's not, then those things are forfeited. I couldn't find anything like that, the notion of a security deposit in Oregon. If it's there, that's, there's no um, paperwork that I could find. Also, they had a lot of language about training workers if they're, if they're going to use chemicals. And I didn't find any such language in Oregon contracts on state force, other than maybe what's required by label or required under other statutes. But this, in Washington, it was required as part of the contract. So hence, if it was found that workers were not trained, then they would forfeit their security deposit. That's accountability. In Oregon, as opposed to Washington, we see a lot of cookie-cutter you know, regulations where it's like 60 feet for drinking water, for fish, for whatever. Nothing in particular about weather. Weather on the coast is very different than weather in, I don't know, in eastern Oregon. I mean, it's very cookie-cutter here. We're not looking at the cumulative impacts of chemicals. We're not looking at those protected drinking watersheds. So in closing, our suggestions would be that we have to regulate, we have to have protections, regulated protections for protected drinking watershed. If not, why are we designating them as such? And we think that the DEQ, whose responsibility under the Clean Water Act is to protect surface water and drinking water, that they should be included in this regulation. Right now, everything's very siloed amongst the agencies. And we should really establish, particularly for chemicals, a Chemical Protection Act in protected drinking watersheds, PW, PDW. 
uh, and ban aerial herbicide spray because it does drift and it does volatilize and it does run off. And we do need larger no-spray buffers for even ground sprays, 10 feet is not enough because this stuff moves through soil. And we should look at what does the DEQ mean by the 1,000 foot riparian buffer in protected drinking watersheds and, and how do we match our forest practices to that. We've been listening to Lisa Arkin of the Eugene nonprofit Beyond Toxics, speaking last month in the Halem to a public meeting of North Coast Communities for Watershed Protection. This is The Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. Thanks for joining us.